after everything that's happened and the amount of things that, that Dr. Jennings has given to us, I mean, I love the way he talks about God's design law, contrary to imposed or imperial law, and just how much sense that makes. I mean, specifically for me, because my, my study on the love of God biblically is a lot of what you're going to hear in this, an effort to kind of tie this together and give us a thread to help us with, uh, establish great clarity of some things. And so I really appreciate his perspective, and it's, it's really helpful for me. And so I'm going to talk to you about the role of love in creating change. Now, <laughs> I tend to change things if you don't know, like titles. Character and competition. Now it's really sledding with a serial killer. Um, the role of love in creating change. Uh, we actually could call this turkeys on Everest. I recently released a paper, a perspective paper in the Institute titled Turkeys on Everest, and it's a majority of this talk. Here's the thing. When we approach the scripture, how we approach it matters. Would you agree? The mode by which we approach the scripture matters as well. Some people approach the scriptures from a behavior management or sin management perspective or mode. I think that's very consistent with the imposed or imperial law a perspective that Dr. Jennings talks about so often. There's the other mode, which is the mode of transformation. And this is not the mode that many people come to the scriptures with. They're not going into it going, this is going to change me. Outside of they might come to it as like, I'm supposed to be saved and not go to hell for eternity. That might be one perspective they have, that that's all it's designed to do. But what about the rest of my life while I'm here? What's happening to me? What about my character? What about the tools that I lack? And, and all these realities, because as you read the scriptures, you start to see that there are perspectives and patterns that the, that the writers, specifically of the New Testament, talk about that deal a lot with transformation in our life. And so um, I am going to illustrate this uh, by a conversation that I have with two really good friends at home. We're going to call them Jim and John. To protect the innocent, that's what we're going to call them, okay? That's actually their names, <laughs> Jim and John. These are good buddies of mine at home. I live in Boise, Idaho, and these guys are accomplished outdoorsmen. Like, they love everything outdoors. They hunt, they fish, they backpack, they ride motorcycles in to scout, you know, scout for hunts and all these things. And I, I met these guys. They're about 20 years older than me, and they're my fly fishing buddies, so when, when we get together, we're in a truck normally going somewhere to fish for an entire day, and yet we have this running conversation that goes on alongside our, our times together as we're stalking trout. The conversation is really around one central question, and that question is, what is the good life? This is a very ancient dialogue that goes back all the way to the ancient philosophers prior to the time of Jesus. You know, what is the good life? How does it work? And so... Um, one day we got together because Jim, my friend, he said, you know, I'm calling a meeting because I'm really struggling with the fact that I feel very discontent in life. I always feel like I need to be doing something. I've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, and this is not changing, and I'm frustrated, and I need to talk to you guys about it. So when we're not fly fishing, we end up at coffee shops, and we sit there, and we have this discussion. So we, we show up, and we're talking, and he first turns to John, and he goes, John, okay, what do you have to say about this? And John gives his perspective. And then he comes to me and he's like, Ben, what do you think? 
Well, earlier in the conversation, he had said to me that he yesterday or the day before had been out turkey hunting. And so I looked at Jim and I said, Jim, when you go turkey hunting, what's the goal? And he just stared at me like I was the dumbest person he'd ever met. And so I looked at him again. I go, Jim, when you go turkey hunting, what's the goal? Come on, buddy. Answer the question. I know you can do it. Come on. He still didn't answer me. He, and then he goes, well, you know, it's kind of, I go out there to enjoy creation and be with God and all this stuff and, and whatever. And I'm like, come on, Jim. What's the goal when you go turkey hunting? To hunt turkeys, right? Not elephants, not squirrels, turkeys. There's no lack of clarity, right? Just like when you woke up this morning, and you got in your car to drive here. There was no lack of clarity of where you were going, was there? You weren't driving to Portland, Oregon. You came here. You knew what your goal was. If you drink coffee and you get up in the morning and you roll down to your kitchen and hit the Keurig or the pot or whatever, you're not trying to drink water. You're trying to drink coffee. My point with this, with Jim, is most areas of life, we don't lack clarity. We are very clear on what we're trying to do. And the reality is, though, when it comes to life as a follower of Jesus or the church, I think when you start to approach this question of clarity, people begin to struggle. I wrote the paper Turkeys on Everest because the questions I keep getting asked when I interact with people, things like this, Ben, have you found a good church? Or they say, like, what's wrong with the church if they're really blunt? And I started to interpret that in this lens, basically that people are struggling for clarity. Like they want to know, what's the goal? What are we actually trying to do here? Like we show up and we play songs and some guy gets up and talks, he's never very good. And the end result is we go home and there's like this lack of clarity. So I'll illustrate this even further with my friends Jim and John in that same conversation. We got, we got further in and I said to them, when you guys raised your hand to follow Jesus and you signed up and you crossed that line, what did you think you were getting into? <laughs> kind of an interesting question. I want you guys, what did you think you were getting into when you signed up to follow Jesus, when that became a reality in your life? And I think the, the truth is that reality remains pretty ambiguous for a lot of people. Like if we were going to frame it this way with this question right here, as a follower of Jesus, the goal is to become blank. Like Jesus, what was that? Partner? Others? Disciple? Selfless? Obedient? Devoted? Good? Transformed? Chosen? And yet, you know, all these things I think are true, what you're saying, but they're still ambiguous. The next question you have to ask is, if I'm to be obedient, what does that look like? How does that work and function? Right? If I'm going to be transformed, what does that actually look like? How does it function? How do I get there? What are the things involved? When I talked to Jim and John, they gave me two answers. Jim uh, looked at me and goes, uh, eternal life. I'm going to go to heaven. And I'm like, yes, true, but incomplete. And then John goes, to glorify God. This is one that I hear a lot. Interesting thing about glorifying God, how do you know that you are? 
what are the indicators that show up? Is there like a big siren or something that goes off when you do it or you get a neon sign that goes, cha-ching, you know, righteousness imparted to you? I don't know. How do we know? Like these proof and evidence and things and indicate the reality for us are hard and difficult for us to figure out. We stay about three levels above a lot of times where the real practical things happen. And so we're going to come back to this question a little bit. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take you through on a journey through the scriptures because what I want you to see as we wrap up the day is this beautiful thread. We've talked a lot about love today. But what I don't want you to miss is this. It is 100% crystal clear. It is not hidden. It's not cryptic. The patterning, the reality of love in design. Now, because you guys listen to Dr. Jennings all the time, you might be like, dude, get off the stage. Like, we got this all figured out. Because he talks about it a lot. And that's why I like being around him. And so... First, where we're going to start is the primacy of love. Over all things in Scripture, the reality is, is love is prime. There are many other things that people would put in this box that are followers of Jesus. Here's the thing that I'm interested in. As one who people sit in front of me a lot of time and ask about my relationship with God, and they want to know how it works itself out in their life, I had better know what I'm talking about. And what I push across that table to them had not been my opinion. It better line up with scripture and it better be true. So what that means is every one of us needs to be in a position of humility and responsibility when we go to the scriptures to go, what are the most important things and am I actually transferring that to another person? Or am I coming up with some opinion that some other guy had that I heard on YouTube or some church I listened to somewhere else and think sounded really good? So that's what this is about, the primacy of love. And so I'm going to walk you through the scriptures. This will probably feel more like a Bible study. Remember, Mary, you go around, like when you go to Bible study, it's kind of like, la, 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 you know, we're here, hanging out. We fall asleep for a little bit, wake back up, get some coffee, some donuts, and then it's about 8.30 a.m. and you go to work. So John 13, 34 and 35. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Proof text, indicator. How does someone know that Ben Boast is a follower of Jesus? The quality of my love. They can judge it, they can assess it, and man, I hope they do, because you know what? I signed up to follow Jesus, and what that means is love is a reality for me. That's one of the major things, that is the major thing that's gonna shape my life. They can judge me based on that. If I don't want to be loving, I should probably go do something else and not be a follower of Jesus. I think this will become even more clear as we continue. So this is Jesus' kind of final command to his disciples, the last two hours of his life. He's doing the final download before he goes to the cross, and he says, this is what it's all about, guys. Here's a proof. Here's an evidence, an indicator. Then we go to Paul. Man, it's all over the place for him. And a lot of times we don't pick these things up. This passage has become so interesting to me recently. 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 7. He writes a letter to his apprentice who he's left behind to serve the church of Ephesus. And the reality is when one of the uh, unfortunate things I think about the way we teach the scriptures today 
is if you were sent a letter, what would you do with it? When the moment you got it, what would you do with that letter? You'd read it. Would you read one line, put it down, come back a week later and read another line? And then do the same thing week after week after week? You'd read it in its entirety. I would encourage you guys to start reading the letters of Paul like letters. Read them in their entirety. Because what you lose when you don't is the cohesiveness of how a letter is written. The introduction and someone coming out of the gates and saying, this is what I'm, I'm framing everything else I'm going to say with this, this movement in the first few paragraphs. And then you get the body and then the conclusion. Right? We, we miss a lot when we don't read scripture <laughs> the way that it was written. And so this is the beginning of 1 Timothy. Verse 3 says, when I left for Macedonia, I urged you to stay there in Ephesus and stop those whose teaching is contrary to the truth. Something bad was happening. People were teaching wrong stuff, according to Paul. Don't let them waste their time in endless discussions of myths and spiritual pedigrees. So he frames it a little bit with the content that was coming to the table from the wrong teachers. And then he goes on to say, this, these things only lead to meaningless speculations. They're worthless, which don't help people live a life of faith in God. It actually takes them away from what they're supposed to be doing. And then Paul goes here. The purpose of my instruction, oh, let's be very clear, is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from pure, a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a genuine faith. Paul does not hide it. It's crystal clear for him. He comes straight out and says, the wrong teaching, there is clarity. This is the purpose. Here's the goal. That the believers be filled with love. That they become more loving. And then it gets even better. But some have missed this entire point. They don't actually teach this. They're teaching the scriptures. They have turned away from these things and spend their time in meaningless discussions. They want to be known as teachers of the law of Moses, but they don't know what they are talking about, even though they get on the platform and can compel a room. But they're clueless. That's not my words. That's the Apostle Paul to an apprentice who's leading followers of Jesus. Man, I'm so grateful for that. I don't have to make it up. I don't have to try to like, go to it and dress it up and make it all look all pretty and then go, look here, you know, and smoke machines and great musicians and all this. There is immense clarity here from the Apostle Paul. Here's the thing. This isn't the only place he does this. When we read letters like letters, we see progressions like this. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31, before chapter 13. I think you guys know chapter and verse was added way later. I think it's one of the things that never should have happened to the Bible, but that's my own opinion. 1231, but now let me show you a way of life that is best of all, the best way. And then you get chapter 13. If I could speak all the languages of earth and angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but didn't love others, I would be nothing. And then at the end, there's obviously more in 1 Corinthians 13. You guys have Bibles. You can go read it. The end of 13, he says, three things will last forever. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. What happens in verse 14? or chapter 14, verse 1, which isn't in here. 
he transitions and he says, make love your highest goal. Some translations say pursue love. If he didn't make his point already, he restates it. So I've showed you in Timothy and in Corinthians how he does this. If you sit down and go through the New Testament letters and look at it from this, from this frame to see how Paul actually deals with love, you're going to see amazing things of this thread that weaves its way through his letters. There's a lot of people today that talk about the grace of God and the, the doctrine of grace related to Paul. And these same people, when I listen to them, they talk about grace and there's not a lot of talk about love. Here's the thing about Paul. He talked about love two times more than grace. So how do we get there? How do we get there where we have doctrines and churches that are being taught to people that are absent of love? That it's not the present thread. I mean, you could see that the apostle of the church, the, the most catalytic church planner in history, it was at the center of everything he did. And I think it's because we're not really looking for what I'm going to talk about next, the structure of love. Okay, love is structural, I think in our culture, we, we're at a disservice because love is so much about uh, emotion and it's fleeting and it's like roses and chocolates and Valentine's Day. And I think the enemy has done a, a job on us to confuse and create chaos around love itself, that we don't know what it is. And then we also live in a culture that says, define things however you want. However you want to define happiness, whatever's good for you is good for you. However you want to define love, have at it. But in reality, that's not what we see in Scripture. It's certainly not what God's design law is. Love has clear and specific definitions. So I often talk about love in the form of structure and architecture. It is the foundation of all of life. Everything is built on it. The whole operating system runs on it. And if you don't understand that, you miss something very critical to relationships and your own transformation. And so we see these structural patterns show up in the, great, in, in the scriptures found in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the reason I'm doing that is because in the, in the past, I've heard a lot of pastors speak on these, on these topics, or particularly on the passages of the Great Commandment, and they only quote Matthew. And I'm like, it's, another, it's in two other places. How come we only quote Matthew? Never made any sense to me. So I want us to look at all of them and see how when we put these together, how they contribute to the greater whole, how we are able to see the collective, correlative teaching of the great command from Jesus' perspective. So Matthew 22, 37 to 40. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and might. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, the entire law and the prophets and demands of the prophets are based on these commandments. This is the interaction that happens in Matthew. Jesus has been confronted by a lawyer who has come to him, basically a religious regulator, and said, what is the greatest teaching in the law? What is the most important thing, Jesus? And so he responds with, love the Lord your God with your heart, so might, love your neighbors, yourself, all the law and the prophets depend on these things. Okay, so I want you to kind of just hold, put that as a placeholder in your mind. So Mark, chapter 12, 29 to 34, same setting, religious lawyer comes to Jesus, asks the question, Jesus replies, the most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally important. 
Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these, right? Similar language to Matthew. But watch this. This is the lawyer's response to Jesus. Very interesting. He says, the teacher of the religious law replied, well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth by saying that there is only one God and no other. And I know it is important to love him with all my heart, all my understanding, and all my strength, and to love my neighbor as myself. This is more important than to offer all of the burnt offerings and sacrifices required in the law. And so, so the perspective of the religious lawyer is, is actually that of, yes, this is the most important. And he adds some things to this. Okay? So put that alongside Matthew. Just hold that. We'll come back to it. So in Luke 10, the experience that happens is the lawyer comes to Jesus, but Jesus actually does something interesting that he doesn't do in the other two passages. And the other two experiences are counts that are in Matthew and Mark. What happens in Luke is Jesus throws the question back to the lawyer when he's asked. He kind of looks like Socrates almost. He says, how does it read to you? How do you read the law? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbors yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you'll live. Okay, so we have a very clear perspective on the great command from Jesus. Life lived in the great command does three things. First, the account of Matthew, what was Jesus' response? All the law and the prophets are dependent upon this, right? It fulfills the law. It actually accomplishes, and I think what we'd say, design law, it fulfills God's law because you learn how to love. You actually love functionally and love well. In Mark, this is what I want you to hear, is the lawyer's response. He goes, all my burnt offerings and sacrifices, my religious practice doesn't sound like it gets this done. And Jesus says, correct, do this and you'll live. The it is not religion to live life oriented and architected, structured by the great command. And then the last one, Jesus says to the lawyer, do this and you'll live. Love and the great command, structure of the great command brings us life. So to live life in the great commandment fulfills the law. It's not religion and it brings you life. The very vitality that you're looking for, that everybody longs for and is hungering for, is found in the structure of the great command and how we learn how to live and learn to grow in love and to do that functionally. Okay, so we'll go on to the Gospel of John. This is John chapter 15. And so this is the vine and the branches passage that we're all familiar with. Uh, down to verse 8. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. So interesting here. Remember we talked earlier about indicator statements or proof passages. Jesus is saying here again, if you produce fruit, it glorifies God. And it proves that you follow me. Right. So we, as good followers of Jesus, probably should go... I think I better know what producing fruit looks like from Jesus' perspective. If I really want to follow him, I probably need to know what he's talking about. Would we agree on that? Yes? Because that's an indicator statement. We take these things very seriously. He goes on and continues to say this. He says, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. So you start to see this pattern or structure to love from Jesus' perspective that keeps us tied in, that actually envelops us and provides structure. Now, one of the interesting perspectives about this is, are Jesus' commands different than the Father's commands? 
Because Jesus says, I've remained in my Father's love and kept his commands, in a sense. Now remain in my love and keep my commands. Are God's commands and Jesus' commands different? We would say that, but maybe it's a yes and a no. Maybe the yes is this. Remember, Jesus said the great command fulfills the law. All scriptures also say that Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Are you able to fulfill the law perfectly? With sin in life? No, we're not. So Jesus, in a sense, kept the commands of God in a way that we could not keep. In his love, he fulfilled all the law. And then he went to the cross and died for us. And they said, do this. The same thing I told the Israelites to do back in Deuteronomy <laughs> through Moses. Shape culture with love. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. There's no greater commands than these. He gave us his commands. He kind of, it kind of pinnacle and comes to the center. And, and we now have this focus and this structure, this beautiful pattern that's fairly simple for us. And then he continues on and he says, I have told you these things. The reason Jesus tells us, I've told you these things so that you would be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy would overflow. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love than you lay down your life for your friends. He actually gives us a definition of love. Jesus' perspective, no greater love, the greatest love possible is one that's self-sacrificing, others-oriented like Dr. Jennings was talk about, talking about and focused in that way. In the Institute, the definition we use is uh, love is to know, want, and do what's in the best interest of another person. And the reason we have that definition is because it actually reflects the great commandment, to know in my mind, to want in my heart, and to do with my action, my strength. And so as a soul, I'm seeking to love God with my intellect, with my emotion, and with my vocation, my action, my power and influence. And so we get this structure from Jesus. It's a beautiful pattern. And this is from his perspective, but we have so many other patterns throughout the New Testament when you look for them. If, if you are looking for them, you will see them. And they contribute to our transformation. Jesus did not leave us without a structure for our own biblical maturity and formation. He gave it to us. The question is, do we actually want to do it? Do we want to participate? Is it, is it something that's at the center of my life that I want to become more loving? And so the last part, as I, as I kind of transition and conclude, is the power of love. So we talked about the primacy of love, and I think I've demonstrated that simply through the scriptures, not even covering all of it, that there's this immense thread of consistency and clarity with love. And then the structure of love in the great commandment of the pattern and the ability that we have to see clearly how we can grow and develop. This last part is the power. What fuels it all? What gives us the ability to do it? I referenced this passage earlier from the Remedy. Um, this is all New Living Translation that I'm quoting from now, but this is the same one from my earlier talk, Romans 5, 3 through 5. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. Right? Our character gets challenged in trials, Right? And in those trials, we have to develop something that allows us to endure with new character as we're transformed. And endurance develops strength of character. As you continue to go through the trials and move through them, your character changes. 
we become more like Jesus. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead us to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he gave us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Like I said earlier, the function of the Holy Spirit is to come into your life and indwell you with the love of God to equip you to live differently, to be a completely different person than you are right now in a sense, to actually love well in ways that you cannot love. The agency of the Holy Spirit does that for us. I think it's so interesting when Jesus says, it's good that I go away because I'm going to send you a helper. Like if I don't go, you don't get to meet this guy who's actually going to come into your life, give you a new nature and new desires. The old man passes away, the new man comes, and you can begin living differently. That's what happens when you take the mode of transformation to the scriptures and not the mode of sin management or behavior management. Right? We're becoming different people. And like we, like we saw in John 15, the reason Jesus gave us all this is so our joy increases. Joy is actually an emotion. A lot of people get these things confused. They think happiness is an emotion and joy is not. Joy is more this state of being that's got substance and endures and circumstance. If you look it up in the dictionary, joy is actually defined as the emotion of the state of happiness. Happiness is actually cultivated. A, a, love, a life fueled by love, developing your character and with great substance and structure is built cultivated, developed, much like a vineyard, and it has really good byproducts, one of those being joy. This emotional thing that comes here and there from the work that you're doing by joining and partnering with God in transformation. And so we'll continue on in Paul, looking at the power of love, Galatians 5, 6, but we who live by the Spirit eagerly wait to receive by faith the righteousness God has promised to us. For when we place our faith in Christ Jesus, there is no benefit in being circumcised or being uncircumcised. What is important is faith expressing itself in love. I had an experience with my son, who's 12, Eli. We were in his room. He's talking, and he's like, Dad, I feel like I'm not a good Christian. And I'm like, well, what are you talking about? He goes, well, I just don't feel like I'm investing time, and I, I really don't know what to do and how to grow. How do I continue to become more like Jesus is essentially what he was asking and we went to this passage. Your faith, Eli, expresses itself by how loving you are. Your growth in love is an expression of your faith. And he goes, I get it. It makes total sense. So our faith moves out from us in very active ways through the way that we love. And that's what Paul's telling us here. Galatians 5, 13 and 14 says this, For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love, your faith moving out from you, directed toward other people, and it activates this reality that affirms that you follow Jesus because of how you love other people. And as we continue through chapter 5, for the whole law can be summed up in this command, love your neighbor as yourself. Paul sounding a lot like Jesus right here. The consistent thread that's weaving its way through attached to the commands. And so I'm going to play a video for you right now because we went through scriptures. We did it really quickly. We started, and I hope you saw what I was trying to accomplish, which was the great clarity. 
But I think that clarity does something for us. It establishes a goal. And if any of you have tried to achieve goals in your life, sometimes they can be really difficult, right? Okay, you all need to give yourself a round of applause because you know what you just did? Every one of you just summited Everest. <laughs> give yourself a round of applause. I don't know that many of you will ever, if anybody in here will do it in real life, but you just did it today. Now, the guy that you saw in that video briefly where it said summit of Everest, top of the world, and you saw a picture of a guy, that guy's name is Brian Dickinson. Brian is one of two men in the Himalayan database to summit, to have ever summited uh, Everest solo. So he did it by himself. There's a whole story, go look him up. Brian Dickinson. And we had him on our Growth Junkies podcast and interviewed him and I've gotten to know him some. And Brian got to the top of Everest, took his selfie that you saw right there, turned around to descend and went snow blind. Everything went white. He couldn't see. All you have is what you saw were those ropes that get you up to the top. And he explained it. He talked about this one place called the cornice, where basically it's about two foot wide section, and the wind up there is whipping 60, 70 miles an hour at times. And it's a two mile fall to Kathmandu on one side, and a two mile fall to Tibet on the other side, I think it was. He said, you're done if you go down. There's just this rope to get you across. So now he had to traverse that going back down using, using only the ropes. And so the thing about Brian is it's a pretty immense goal to achieve to summit Everest, isn't it? Like, I don't think you show up to try to do that without any training. <laughs> it's a death wish. You spend about a month in, the, in that valley there, doing what's called high climbing, going up and down, acclimating yourself to even try to summit. And people die on Everest all the time. It would be stupid to try to accomplish that goal without any training. And so what is Brian's training that allowed him to accomplish the goal? In his life, he's actually also summited all the seven highest peaks on all the seven continents. So he's an accomplished mountaineer and adventurer, but in his previous life, he was a U.S. Navy rescue swimmer. Now, to know something about these uh, rescue swimmers, when Navy SEALs are in trouble, it's the rescue swimmers that get in the water. And so 
the reason I'm sharing this with you and the reason I bring Brian up is because this goal that God has placed in front of us, this reality, is, is not an easy goal. It's challenging to accomplish, and we need each other to come alongside and to learn from one another and to move through it together as we're seeking to, in a sense, summit Everest together. God has placed this in front of us, and it's not an easy task to become a more loving person. It's difficult, but it is clear, and it's not cryptic, and it's not hidden from us. And so we need training, and we need to work at it, and we need to be kind to ourselves when we fail. But what I would tell you is this is life and death. This is spiritual life and death for people and for yourself. You would never want to get on Everest without the right amount of oxygen. Brian was out of oxygen at one point, and he found a bottle in the ice. It's an amazing story, and it worked. The descent that should have taken him three hours took him seven. And then he was blind for an immense amount of time after that. But he healed. And this was a guy who was fully and totally prepared. And so the purpose of my talk today and the way that I want to conclude is this. I don't want to leave you with a lack of clarity. I want to point you and direct you to the scriptures in a way through a thread that maybe you had never seen before like the way that we just did it. If we have to answer that original question, as a follower of Jesus, the goal is to become what? I think we would answer it this way. As a follower of Jesus, the goal is to become a loving person. We say in the Institute that transformation is not about becoming a different person. God wants you to be the person he's designed you to be. He doesn't make mistakes and to learn how to love well as that person. That's transformation. That's why I think in Galatians 5, through 25, in the fruit of the Spirit, it says, the fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against these things, there is no law. Why? Because you can't force people to do them. You can't force someone to be patient. You can't force them to be kind. Have you ever tried it? You can't make them love you. We choose this. As the ones that God has designed, we choose to love functionally, and that's what makes us different than everybody else on, around the world. It's what we have that the rest of the world doesn't have, and you will not find it on a self-help shelf at Barnes & Noble because it's not there. Everything in those books is trying to make you something different. God made you the way you are for a purpose, let us love well as those people. And so the image that has been behind my, my slides are these light bulbs. And so I'll conclude with this. Love is like electricity. It's like this current. If you know how electricity works, it's electrons being pulled into a flow through a pipe. The amperage and the voltage and everything. And we are like these electrons. And, and God, through his spirit, pulls us into this current, into this flow. And what he wants us to do is attract other electrons to ourselves, to pull them into the flow, into that current, the flow of love, the one that everything else runs on. And at times in our life, it might be you know, like a light bulb. It might dim, but then it gets bigger, but it never shuts off. It never goes away. All of life runs on it, and it all functions 
Like I said, love is structural and it brings architecture to all of life. It is also the current that everything runs on and the very thing that God wants to pull us into to take to the rest of the world. And so as we conclude today and move to a Q&A, I would just encourage you to give some thought to that. Go back to the scriptures. Look at the thread. Like, like Dr. Jennings said, meditate on a loving God who can actually change your mind and overhaul your demeanor and make you a new person. Thank you. Thank you.